Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. Before we get going, I wanted to let you know that tomorrow, Tuesday, June 4th, at 3.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, so that's 11.30 p.m. in the UK, I'll be doing an Ask Me Anything on the history section of Reddit. I'll be providing a link on Facebook and Twitter as soon as it goes live. I'd really appreciate it if you dropped by and asked me a few questions and maybe upvoted the thread if you liked it. And you really can ask me anything. Okay, so last episode we ended at 597. For those of you who are really interested in Anglo-Saxon history, you might recognize that as the date that Christianity gets reintroduced to Anglo-Saxon Britain. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal, in fact. It will bring war, it will bring chaos, and it will bring all manner of changes to the lives of the people in what will eventually become England. And one of the big changes has to do with sex. Now, the truth is that all too often, historians and narrators tend to devolve into a giggle fit over sex and try and dodge the issue with silliness or even just outright avoid it. And you might be expecting me to do the same, since I am rather fond of silly statements. But this stuff is actually vitally important, and is something that is almost never discussed. So today's episode might be a little more sober than usual, but I think you will find it rather fascinating. And it will bring to light a massive shift in culture that accompanied the reintroduction of Christianity. You might be wondering how you go about studying a subject like this, since the Anglo-Saxons weren't writing down very much, and generally it was the monks who were doing the writing, and they weren't too inclined to record these matters. Well, some of it comes from studies on genetics, which is a relatively new area of investigation. So what do we know? Well, recent studies into Y-chromosome variations, which, with very few exceptions, are chromosomes that only men have, found that men in central England had strikingly similar variations on their Y-chromosomes as those from the Anglo-Saxon homelands. Basically, guys in central England had a lot of the same markers as guys from the Danish peninsula. And interestingly, that isn't the case for men in North Wales, even though these two populations prior to the Anglo-Saxon migration were relatively similar. Now, I won't get into all the math and genetics of the study, but the end result is that to accomplish such a dramatic shift in the genetic makeup of Central England, it would have required a migration of over half a million men. And keep in mind that the entire population of Britain at this point is estimated by some to have been scarcely over 2 million people. To put that in perspective, it would be like the population of Portland packing up their food carts, loading their cattle dogs into their Subarus, and then invading New Mexico. But even that's an imperfect example, because it would have had to been a population the size of Portland that was entirely comprised of men. And we just don't have evidence for anything approaching that scale occurring in England, or really anywhere else during the Middle Ages for that matter. It just didn't happen. Current studies suggest that the migration was significantly smaller than that. So how on earth did such a big shift in genetics happen? How did you get the men of England looking rather Germanic on a genetic level? I mean, if the Anglo-Saxons came over and just mixed in with the substantially larger local population, there wouldn't have been that extreme of a change, since the genetic variations would have been a bit washed out by the presence of the native population. Furthermore, why is it specifically the Y chromosome that shows the bulk of the shift, rather than the X chromosome, which is something that both men and women have? It looks like there must have been some sort of difference in the lives of the men and women with regard to this migration, doesn't it? 
Well, one theory that I find quite persuasive is an apartheid-like situation within England. Now, I'm sure that some of you are balking at this and thinking that apartheid is something that's confined to our colonial and post-colonial history. But no. Actually, there's evidence for it all over Europe, especially in the post-Roman era. I mean, the Visigoths imposed it, and so did the Normans to a certain extent. So it's not entirely unheard of, and it definitely could have occurred in Anglo-Saxon England. Essentially, imagine a situation where there was limited intermarriage and sexual contact between the two groups of people for about the first couple hundred years. And where there was sexual contact, it was generally Anglo-Saxon men with British women. You can see how that can happen, right? You have immigrant men who have increased status when compared with the native population. And don't assume that that status is simply due to martial ability. These people were farmers, and the sub-Roman British were thrown into absolute chaos following the collapse of their system. Even if the immigrant men weren't warriors, the fact that they were gifted farmers in an economy that literally ran on food would be enough to elevate their stature because they'd be comparatively rich. And that increased status might have granted a higher level of reproductive success. Don't forget that we're in an era where daughters were being married off or just given away for strategic and economic reasons. So the higher your status, the more likely you are to get married, especially for men. And if the Germanic dynasties that first came over were higher in status, then they could well have been reluctant to marry their daughters off to the lowly natives and rather married them off to other Germanic dynasties with similar wealth and status, thereby reinforcing their own wealth and status and also reinforcing this cultural split. And we see evidence of the, well, let's just call it what it was, bigotry, even in their laws. For example, the 7th century Wessex law code differentiates between the Welsh, basically the British, and the Saxons, and grants more value to the Saxons in things like the Ware Guild, which you might recall was their system of fines. And the laws of Athelbert of Kent had a similar distinction. So all things being equal, Saxons were just more important than the British, according to the law. But to muddy this picture, the laws of Inna also imply that the two groups were living very close together, and even sometimes under the same roof. And like we spoke about earlier, we do see individuals who were pretty clearly descendants of the Romano-British, yet when we're looking at their graves, they were looking pretty Anglo-Saxon, really. And that suggests a cultural mingling. So we aren't seeing a distinct split between the two communities within England, where they each have their own communities and never the twain shall meet. But rather, it seems like they're mixed together in the same villages. However, as made clear in their law books, even centuries after the initial migration, a distinction could still be drawn between the Saxons and the British. The obvious explanation for how that could be accomplished is within apartheid where the two groups were in the same community, but had different statuses and intermarriage was discouraged or even outright banned. And it probably started in those early days when the sub-Roman population was in chaos. And given the fact that power was centralizing around men at this point, and the Germanic dynasties were taking root, it follows that we start to see an increase in Germanic Y-chromosome traits. Basically, Germanic families were becoming more successful, and as a result, the males of those families were becoming more powerful and had more opportunities with both Germanic and British women, whereas the British men were a low-status group with few opportunities. 
possibly even within their own community, since most fathers would probably prefer to marry their daughters to the ruling Germanic families if at all possible, rather than the low-class British families. But of course, explaining this genetic shift entirely based on these marriages assumes that the Anglo-Saxons approached marriage and sex in a relatively modern way. And it looks like they didn't. These people are alien in a number of ways, after all, and this is no exception. For example, they practice concubinage. And that is particularly relevant to this discussion for a couple reasons. The first being that it might have had a role to play in this odd genetic change that we're seeing. And the second is because concubinage was something that the church in Rome wasn't too fond of. And like we talked about at the top of this episode, that church is coming to visit. And they're not going to like what they find. I mean, we're talking about a religion where the spiritual leaders weren't even that crazy about the idea of monogamous marriage. For example, Bede spoke about how, quote, even lawful intercourse cannot take place without fleshy desire, end quote. But if you're going to enter a church, you must wash first, because even the desire itself is sinful. To translate from Bede's flowery and fleshy language, basically he's saying, we can't stop you from sleeping with your wife, despite the fact that it's sinful and gross. So at the very least, please don't come to church without having washed first. If that doesn't tell you how squeamish the church was, even about sex within marriage, I don't know what will. But for our period in England, things were still rather pagan, and concubines were a part of life. So let's talk about what that entails. First of all, concubinage is different from polygamy. Polygamy implies a certain level of equality, since there are a number of legally recognized spouses. Whereas concubinage is a situation where a man has a number of partners, but only one of these is his legal wife, and the remainder have various privileges, but are not legally recognized as his spouse. You can also see this situation appear where a man has no legally recognized wife, but still has a number of concubines, or consorts. In both of these situations, while the man has sexual access to these women, the women themselves are not protected by the laws governing marriage, and their offspring are not automatically recognized as heirs. The children may be able to inherit, but it really depends on the local customs as well as the father's willingness to recognize them. So that's no fun. And let's face it, even for the wives, life was no picnic under early Anglo-Saxon law. Women weren't full persons under the law, but rather they were subservient and existed under the protection of the men in their lives. Sure, there were certain laws for certain regions during certain times that did allow a woman to seek divorce by her own wish, but that was a rarity. In general, women held a lesser legal status than the men in their lives and were just kind of bound by marriage. And actually, wives were sort of chattel under the law. For example, under the laws of Athelbert, a man could abduct another man's wife, pay the husband the appropriate wear guild, and buy him a new wife. And then he could keep the stolen wife as his own now. Romantic. And the really distressing part about these laws is it seems like the difference between legal abduction of another man's wife and rape is that one act is kept secret and the other isn't. That's it. But as dodgy as it seems like it must have been to be a wife... Concubines were in an even more precarious position, despite being members of a man's household. For example, if a man were to leave his wife, there would be certain legal protections to ensure that she wasn't entirely destitute. And if she was widowed, she and her children could inherit, which would increase her chances of remarrying. But for a concubine and her children, 
they were really on their own under most of the laws that we're aware of from this period. Basically, they're entirely at the man's mercy, and if he grew tired of them, they could easily find themselves homeless, or worse. And being a concubine probably wasn't a choice that the woman would have been making. At this point in history, the woman's role in society hinged upon her male guardian, so it pretty much came down to what he decided to do. She'd marry who he decided, or become a concubine to who he decided. And given that wives are typically accompanied by dowries, but concubines were not required to provide a dowry, if your family was poor, your chances of being a concubine rather than a wife increased substantially. After all, it was the cheaper option of getting rid of you. Furthermore, if you have the gall to be a woman and want control of your own sexuality in Anglo-Saxon England, chances are that society wouldn't be overly kind to you. In fact, the laws were pretty clearly against it, and when such a transgression occurred, generally the man involved was required to pay a were-guild to the woman's guardian. Again, women in this period were rather like chattel. And interestingly, the laws are often silent on what the woman's punishment was. However, the implication is that even if the legal system isn't punishing the woman, she'll probably end up punished privately at home, presumably for damaging her guardian. Charming. If you want a taste of what society thought of female sexual freedom, there's an old English poem that says, It is fitting for a woman to be busy with her embroidery. A roving woman spreads rumor. Often people defame her with shameful deeds. Men speak of her insultingly. Her beauty often fades. Maybe it's more poetic in Old English, but the implication is clear. Ladies, don't stray. Don't even control your own sexuality. And don't Definitely don't try and express it. Try crafts instead. You can imagine how such a community would view concubines after they are set aside, can't you? And as you might be gathering from this discussion, concubinage and even some marriages in Anglo-Saxon England could easily be described as sexual slavery. So the question you might be asking is how do you end up in this situation? Well, the truth is that women in any class and ethnicity could end up in concubinage. But the lower your status, the more at risk you were. For example, one way that you might become a concubine is that you're given away by your male guardian. I suspect that this would be the more common way, and it would also prey greatly upon the underclasses of Anglo-Saxon Britain. I mean, think about it. Especially in those early days, the sub-Roman natives were probably starving, and they might have been forced to sell their children. Or even later on, what if there was a bad harvest and your family still owed food rent? What then? Your guardian might decide that giving you up as a concubine was preferable to starving to death. Or even outside of economic strife, there could still be plenty of reasons that your family might put you up into concubinage. Maybe your family is too poor to afford a dowry. Or maybe your family is too low in status to refuse the demand. I mean, if the Thane wants you as his concubine, and your family is a lowly British household, what do you think the chances are that that demand will be refused? Another way that women can end up as concubines is through war. There are references to the term marriage by capture, which is probably exactly what it sounds like. So what we're getting at here is that while there are a variety of ways that someone could end up as a concubine, the odds were that if you were from the lower classes, which would have been disproportionately British if there was an apartheid system in place, then you'd be at a substantially greater risk of being forced into that life. 
And that plays directly into how we could have ended up with this genetic shift that we've been discussing. And there's another aspect of this difference in class and legal rights that could have had an impact upon the genetics of the population. And that's forced sex. The legal system set up by the Anglo-Saxons ties the punishment for a crime to the status of the victim. That means that the penalty for a British man killing a Saxon would be much higher than the reverse, because British men were worth less than Saxon men. This is also true for the crime of rape. The penalty for raping a British woman would have been significantly lighter than for a Saxon woman which could suggest that there might have been more assaults of British women by Germanic men than the reverse. And that, too, could lead to an increase in Germanic Y-chromosome variations. Now, you might be wondering why this concubinage system was put in place. And the answer is that it probably flowed from the same system that might have introduced an apartheid. Basically, an obsession with status that got mixed up in sex. Broadly speaking, Germanic cultures were rather obsessed with virility. The more virile you were, the more status you had. And you can see how this sort of culture would come into direct conflict with the church later on, can't you? On the one hand, you have the position of the more sex you're having, the more powerful you are. And on the other side was the position that power comes entirely from abstaining from the temporal world, especially with regard to sexual desire. There's not a lot of wiggle room there. There's going to be conflict. So with the introduction of Germanic culture, you have this attention to virility, and concubines play a significant role in that. But the knife cuts both ways. The truly horrific aspects of this definitely lie with the women who were forced into lives of sexual slavery. There's no denying that, nor is there any discounting it. To be a woman in Anglo-Saxon England, especially a British woman, would have been an awful experience. But that same system also hurt the men. The inclination might be to just assume that men were all living like high-status Anglo-Saxons. And if you were higher in status, and male, you probably would have had a lot of exclusive sexual partners. Though they could well have been rather unwilling, which is his own level of awful and creepy. But in general, you're going to have reproductive success. But if you were lower in status, what chance would you have to raise a family? With so many women being claimed by those at the top, and such an emphasis being placed upon virility, what do you think your chances would be? There might have been quite a lot of childless and brutally lonely British men at this point in history. And that, too, could have impacted the genetic shift within central England. When we started this look into Anglo-Saxon Britain, I told you that we were going to take a hard look at these people and try and make them real. And they're not all heroic and boozy. Sure, it's highly unlikely that they committed genocide, but what it looks like they did was still brutal and oppressive. And part of that oppression lies in their approach to sexual relationships and women's rights, or lack thereof. And we're going to find that, going forward, the Anglo-Saxons were not that eager to give up their tradition of concubines, despite the pleas of the church. But so I don't leave you on the darkest of down notes, because this episode has been a bit rough. Here's an email from listener Charlotte. She writes, Because of listening to your podcast, I know more about British history than my friend at work who's from London. However, due to her gaining her citizenship when she was 15, she knows more about American history than I do. Well, I don't really have anything to add to that other than that's awesome and thanks for giving me a light note to end this on. Now, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or if you could just use a stiff drink... 
I know I can. You can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash British History. And we're on Twitter. Just search for at British Podcast. And, of course, there's always the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Click Get Involved and click Forums. And we'll see you over there. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.